So a few weeks ago, I really, really stepped in it. I really crossed a boundary with some of you. It wasn't my perspective on uh, what's going on with the quote-unquote war, if that's what you call it, in Libya. It wasn't my perspective on a whole host of social or political issues that I've brought up over the last month or two. It wasn't, wasn't any of that stuff. I really stepped in it when I disparaged Jim Morrison. I mean, I heard from you. I mean, there were people right after the service came up and talked to me, and then there were people who sent me email about it. Um, I have, if you've been around for uh, a little while, you may recognize I have certain strong, that I think very well thought out opinions as well, too, about the nature of certain kinds of popular music. And so um, let's say roughly from the release of the, the Beatles' White Album in 1968 until the release of Born to Run in 1975, that is my least favorite period of rock and roll. My least favorite. I know, I know, I know. I'm just stepping in it even more. I'm just smearing it all around. I now, it's not that there weren't good things that happened, from my opinion, in there. I, I love uh, the, the funk and, and the soul music of that time. I love the fact that the, the Birds became an amazing uh, country band and launched the careers of Graham Parsons and Amy Lou Harris. I mean, there's some good things that really happened from 1968 to 1975. But when I think about that period, I also think about 25-minute drum solos. And I'm sorry, there is no excuse other than self-indulgence for a 25-minute drum solo. Unless you're going to a concert that's only of drums. As I said, I have some strong opinions. It's one of the reasons that for me, punk, punk rock was my mother's milk, was my first music that I could call my own. Not because it was angry, although it was that, and I was kind of an angry teen as well too, or didn't really know how to deal with my anger. It's that also punk rock for me really took rock and roll back to its origins. It wasn't about the future, it was actually about the past. Back to simple, short, compact songs about love and loss and longing that also could serve from time to time as a very effective form of social critique. So, that's how I feel about the years 1968 to 1975. I'm sure some of you will continue to tell me how you feel exactly after this. But as I said, there are a few exceptions, a few exceptions to music that I really like from that time period, and this is one of them. This is one of them. Tommy, the who? Yeah, a rock opera, which is part of the problem. Rock opera? I mean, this is good in and of itself. It's actually an excellent album, but starting that whole genre of rock opera... Not for me. Pretentious. Anyway, I remember when I was 14, maybe 15 years old, and I got the double LP of Tommy by The Who. It was awesome. I remember you know, the way you used to open up a double LP, and they had amazing liner notes, and it was really, really cool. Now, Tommy, some of you will probably know, is the story of that main character. In sort of politically incorrect terms, back then, what we now would say, Tommy cannot hear or speak. Or see. Tommy cannot communicate with the outside world because what happened to him when he was a very young child, he witnessed his father being murdered by his mother's lover. And his response to witnessing that violent trauma was to completely shut the world down, not shut down his own internal self-understandings. We hear that all throughout the rock opera, all throughout Tommy, we understand that there is life inside of him. It's just that because this traumatic thing has been witnessed upon him, 
He cannot connect with the outside world. And so the prayer, the refrain all throughout Tommy, if you know the lyrics, if you know the music, is this. See me, feel me, touch me, heal me. Very much a prayer. See me, feel me, touch me, heal me. One of the things that I think Tommy does very, very well, it's a dramatized version, of course, but it gets to the heart of what many people who have experienced violence in their lives unfortunately understand, a kind of silence, a kind of being cut off from the rest of the world around them, and a kind of inability to communicate their pain to the people that they share their lives with. This is so often, unfortunately, the case with people who have had violence visited upon them or have been victims of violence. That the original trauma itself can go unspoken or unshared. And so that trauma becomes perpetuated over and over and over again. The same it was for Tommy, living in that place of that violation, unable To enter life fully again. That's one of the meanings behind our meditation that we do here every week. One conscious step, one conscious breath is intended to be a method of healing for us. Those of us who are struggling, because if we can take one conscious step and one conscious breath, we can be here in our lives right now and not just reliving what has happened to us. What so often follows in the wake of violence is silence. Not the kind of silence that I use in my spiritual prayer, which for me is a liberating form of silence, a kind of silence that welcomes me home and reconnects me to the God of my understanding. Not that kind of silence that gives me permission to pull things up and to just experience myself as I am. No, this is the kind of silence that rather than reveals, it conceals. It shuts us down rather than opening us up. Silence of being left speechless, of not literally having the words to be able to explain what has happened to us. Some of you remember from the late 80s when it took, I think, President Reagan until 1987, the second to last year of his term, to even mention the word AIDS. And so if you remember from the group ACT UP, a lot of street demonstrations, what did they say? Silence equals death. Silence equals death because if we cannot speak about trauma, then life itself shuts down. That kind of silence that follows after trauma or being violated is a life-denying form of voicelessness. If you allow yourself, as I imagine some of us have, to read the horrendous, and they are horrendous stories of monstrous evil of what has happened in Darfur or what happened in the 90s in Bosnia and you've read about the coordinated campaigns of sexual violence against mostly women and girls but also against men and boys as well too you know that in those stories it is not simply about the violation of an individual that the reason those were orchestrated military campaigns is because what was to follow in the wake of these horrific acts of violence was shame and silence that whole networks of communities were rendered speechless because of the violence that had been perpetrated upon individuals within those communities and so the first step out not the only step but the first and most necessary step in living life after violence has visited our lives if it has visited yours is to be able 
to start once again to tell our stories in such a way so that we can say, this may have happened to us, but this horrific thing is not all of what I am. If you remember the West Wing, remember that great show about fictional President Bartlett? Now, the first season ended with an assassination attempt upon the president. The president actually got away pretty much doing okay. But his deputy chief of staff, a guy named Josh, if you remember and you watched that show, was actually wounded almost mortally in his body. His body starts to heal, but as the second season comes about, we see that Josh is not engaging in very healthy behaviors. He's very, very angry. He is drinking a lot. He is overworking. He's trying to fill some hole in him that he cannot quite articulate because he cannot yet talk about what happened to him. And so he is mandated by Leo, by that great, great character actor. I forget his name. By Leo, the chief of staff. you got to go into counseling, man. And the counselor says to him these words. What we need to get you to do is to be able to remember the shooting without reliving it. You see, you have been reliving it every single day. By his not being able to talk about it, he has been reliving it. And so that past has become his frozen present. In so many of the world's great traditions, storytelling is what exists at the heart and at the center as a way of understanding our path through this life and, yes, also healing our lives when we have been wounded. There's a wonderful book that is about the history of Alcoholics Anonymous, but it's about much more. It's actually a, an entire understanding of the nature of spirituality. It's called very simply, very wonderfully, The Spirituality of Imperfection. Woven all throughout that book are stories. And storytelling and the understanding that as we have the ability to tell our stories, particularly about personal past that have been difficult or violent or traumatic, so we are able to release ourselves into the present moment of our lives. The ability to tell a story makes sense of the pain, even the violence that we may have witnessed or been a part of or have visited upon ourselves. It's a study that I heard a number of years ago that is absolutely fascinating that the same kind of bullet wound that a person suffers from the same kind of gun has completely different levels of pain associated with it or the different levels of pain management or drugs that the gunshot victim asks for. If you are walking down the street, this study says, and you are shot in a random act of street crime, you are much likely because you don't have a story very often to tell about it versus what a soldier has who gets shot in battle. Not minimizing the damage of war, not minimizing war itself. But this study talks about that in warfare, a soldier can say to him or herself, I've been shot protecting my friends. I have been shot in battle protecting a, an ideal that is important to me, protecting the country. When violence is random or there is not any story we can place around it, it can feel almost as if the bottom of our lives has dropped out. In silence, there is just the gap of speechlessness. There are some really amazing websites that talk about the power of stories to help people heal from violence. There's one called silencespeaks.org, which uses multimedia ways of storytelling. It's very painful stories. I would not encourage you to go there unless you are prepared to be moved and challenged. But if you do go there, take a listen to the stories that the people that tell 
understanding self-consciously that as they tell their stories, they are contributing not just to their own healing, but the healing of other people who have experienced violence as well. But beyond silentspeaks.org, I heard an amazing sort of old school example of storytelling this past uh, Thanksgiving Day, 2010. It was on an NPR show. I think it was Talk of the Nation. And uh, as some of you may know, I think all of us know, the day after Thanksgiving is, you know, quote unquote, you know, Black Friday, you know, big retail day. It also, some of us may not know, it is also the National Day of Listening. (laughs) Perhaps those two things are at odds with each other. I'll leave that in your hands to figure out. But on this Thanksgiving Day, what they had is a representative from a group called the Story Corps Project, if you've heard of it. And what they do is they collect, at this point, they've collected tens of thousands of, of stories, American people from all walks of life, cataloging these stories, sharing them, make sure that they will be there for the future, for other people to hear them as well, too. And as the hour wound down, you just heard all these amazing stories of people calling in, largely about stories of gratitude, but also some stories about people living through and getting to the other side, overcoming some very, very difficult and traumatic episodes in their life. And towards the end of the hour, there's a woman who called in who really, really uh, spoke to me. Uh, It's a woman, she called herself Heather, and she said that she had had a very, very challenging childhood. She was raised in an alcoholic family in which there was... Uh, physical and sexual abuse, and that what she, in her own life as a parent, she had four kids, what she attempted to do was to never visit upon her kids what had been done to her. And she had been successful in that. And at the same time, she also said that their family life was chaotic, that her children very often experienced her as dictatorial and in controlling, the kind of person who really kind of locked them down her kids very often rebelled against her. She said at one point a few years ago, their family reached a point at which the family was coming apart the seams and she felt this was the moment at which I had to tell all of my four adult children about what had happened to her when she was growing up. And one by one by one by one, each of these children, her adult children, didn't blame her for anything. Didn't have a sense, why didn't you tell me this earlier? They had a sense of, ah, now I get it. When she was telling her youngest daughter, I think the fourth of the four children that she told, what her life had been like when she was growing up as a kid and why she was some of the ways, Heather, that she was, her daughter got a phone call and she picked it up and she answered and she said, I'm sorry, I can't talk now. I'm having the best time with my mother. And it's not best as in, oh, we're having you know, a really lighthearted conversation. It wasn't that. It was best in the sense of now I understand the truth of who she is and I understand the truth of who we are. And in that storytelling, you could hear and experience in the healing. And at, towards the end of the conversation, Heather started to talk about some of the effects that this liberating storytelling has had on her. Now, every year, every year, at least once a year, she goes to her kids and she asks them, how have I hurt you in a particular way? How have I disappointed you? And she asked them to be honest with her. And then she goes about the process of making amends. And she said on this upcoming Christmas holiday, she was going to be gathered and gathering to her family house for the first time ever, four generations of her family under the same roof. That ability to tell our story is such a blessing. 
Because it means that even if very difficult things have happened to us, life can still go on. It is a way of stopping the war within. That's one of the greatest tragedies for people who have suffered violence, is that well after the act itself was perpetrated upon them, that they internalize that struggle and they are literally at war with themselves. As the great teacher Jack Cornfield talks about stopping the war within, that is a method of peacemaking and healing in telling our stories that although we have been wounded, some of us much more than others, those wounds need not be fatal. Now, many of us, I'm aware, may not have had violence, horrific or otherwise, visited upon us in our lives. We may not. Some of us have never been violated or demeaned in body and mind and spirit, although I think if we scratch the surface in our lives, we'll find some ways that perhaps we may have been. But this is absolutely true, that the chances are that almost all of us know someone who has been the victim of violence. We may not even know that we know, but we know that there is always a vague sense of perhaps dis-ease or discomfort or something that feels unfinished in our relationship with this person or people. And it is at that moment when we hear, when we are blessed to hear another person's story of how they are healing, that we know what it is to have the sacred privilege of simply being a witness to someone else's story. The recognition that they are choosing to share with us what they have learned to live with. All of us know someone who has struggled mightily in some way and has survived violence. See, because there's not just the storyteller. There's the story itself. But most essentially in that truly healing trinity... There is also the person who is willing to listen, to sit, and to simply be a witness. We see this over and over and over again in stories large and small of healing. We heard them at the truth and reconciliation process that kept the country of South Africa after the era of apartheid was over from slipping into violent revolution because they told the truth of their society. We heard it at the Nuremberg trials. Some of us have done that on the counselor's chair or a cup of coffee with a friend even and it is a very dramatized version but still very very moving the moment in goodwill hunting if you've seen that story where the young man the genius will who has been violated over and over and over again in his life and robin williams in the best role i think robin williams will ever have says to him this and he shows him the pictures of the bruises on will's own body as a child this is not your fault this is not your fault. As being blessed enough to be a listener is to live inside the gap of another person's pain for a moment. Almost as if, if you recognize this symbol, this is what I think of whenever someone chooses to share with me a story of how they are learning to heal from how they have been violated. I think of the London Underground. The tube, mind the gap. Be mindful 
in the gap. That someone is trying to share with me their story of how they are healing. And that I am not to be in that gap as someone who has answers. I am not to be in that gap as someone who is to say really all that much of anything. We are to be in that gap simply, mindfully, presently, prayerfully. In that moment where presence is all that is required of us and to learn to see and to witness what it is to be soul to soul and to know that in that moment there is something even bigger there than just the words spoken a space bigger and more holy it is what the great progressive monk Thomas Merton talked about with these words when he wrote the deepest level of communication is not communication The deepest level of communication is communion. It is finally wordless. It is beyond words. It is beyond speech. It is even beyond any concept. And it is not that we discover in that moment a new unity. What we discover is the oldest unity that there is. My dear brothers and sisters, we discover that we are already one. But we imagine and sometimes we live As if we are not. And so what we have to recover is that original unity. What we have to be is what we are. This for me corresponds with the most powerful part of our Unitarian Universalist heritage. The simple Universalist teaching that love will guide us if we allow it. That healing is open to us if we give ourselves to it. And that there is a unity with the source of life itself that is true for all people forever. Now, how to enter this place of being a listener? I had a professor in seminary who suffered such an amazingly horrendous thing. It's one of those things you wonder How does a person live with that? And yet people do all the time. Nicholas Waltersdorf was the kind of professor who put the fear of, he was a theology professor, so he literally put the fear of God into me. That's not why I remember him. It's because Nicholas Waltersdorf wrote a beautiful, simple, little 80-page book called Lament for a Son. That was his experience of living after he got a call One night in summertime many years ago and found out that his 23-year-old son, Eric, while mountain climbing in Europe, had fallen from the face of the rock wall to his death. And so Nicholas Waltersdorf wrote this beautiful little book, Lament for a Son, telling the truth of his own story. And also trying to equip others to stand in that same kind of gap when violence has come to visit us. Or we are witness to another person's healing. He says, what do you say to a person who is suffering? If we think that our task as a comforter is really to say, eh, taken all together, it's not so bad. You do not sit with me, he writes, in my grief. But you place yourself over there, above from me, at a distance from me. And you refuse to recognize how painful it is. But I need to hear from you 
that you are willing to be with me in my desperation. To comfort me, you have to come close. Come, sit beside me on my morning bench. Come, sit beside me. What Nicholas Walters Dorf invites us all to do is to learn to be a true companion. You know what that word means, companion? It means literally a person that we break bread with. For me, I think of it as something I did pretty mindlessly for years. I grew up in a Jewish family, and we sort of raced through our Seder at about 10-minute light speed. Every year, they seem to take another minute, another minute, another minute off of it to get to the good stuff, the eating. But there's this moment in the Seder, which is supposed to be very solemn. We didn't experience it that way. I'm not blaming my parents. It just wasn't a regular part of our lives. In which we talk about you know, eating the matzah, which I love, and a lot of people find absolutely flavorless. And by the way, I love gefilte fish, too, but most people really despise that. Um, but there's that moment where we eat, as we talk about, the, the bread of affliction of our forefathers and our foremothers. We're supposed to do it in remembrance. Thing is, as I said, most often for me, that was a mindless kind of thing, a mindless kind of ritual. Until I was in college and I went to a Seder that kind of updated what the Seder is all about. They call it a freedom Seder, a celebration of liberation for all people. And when we got to that point in the Seder, they asked, imagine that you are sharing this bread of affliction, not from long ago and far away, but with all people who are struggling and suffering right now because of violence and oppression. That is remembering, not in the sense of long ago and far away, but understanding what the word remembering means. Remember. To put back together that which has been taken apart. To be there as a witness when another person is remembering themselves through their story is to be witness to an act of creation. It requires just our presence and completely our presence. It makes meaning of one of our core values here at Wellsprings, which is to be and to live as people of integrity. Now, integrity is one of those words that pass around all the time. And I don't want to understand it as some great, big, noble, ethical, virtuous aspiration. I have a person of integrity. I don't lie. I don't steal. I don't cheat. Integrity in this sense means integrated, to learn to be whole, to witness to another person's remembering. And that's why we talk about living a life of integrity as learning to be people who are capable of deep listening, to come sit beside another person on their morning bench, on their healing chair. To understand what Tommy was singing about internally all those years before he was able to speak and to communicate with the outside world. Feel me, seal me, touch me, heal me. To witness is, I think, one of life's most blessed opportunities. It is... To be a party to creation, not something long ago and far away. It is to know the courage of being able to exist in the gaps of life. 
And there are so many. Which is why we are so necessary. May today be a day of healing for you. May today be a day of listening for you. May today be a peaceful day for you. Amen. And may you live in blessing. Let's pray together. Source of life, of listening, of healing. May we be among those who can stand in the gaps. Whether it is our own life that has been visited by violence or another person's life. May we tell our stories with honesty. May we listen to other stories with compassion. May we know that these are not isolated acts, but they are part of the ancient practice, as the Hebrew says, of tikkun ha'olam. The healing and the stitching back up of the world into its original state of wholeness and unity. May we know deeply that to heal is to love, and to love is to live. Amen.